last person I chatted with was Ms. Beth Feynman, an oncology nurse practitioner who reviewed in detail the clinical history of a patient with a prior history of renal insufficiency who was then diagnosed with multiple myeloma. A 65-year-old man who presented for a routine follow-up at a nephrology clinic and was referred to us because he developed worsening renal failure. He had been diagnosed with chronic renal insufficiency for about 10 years, and he had been diagnosed with diabetes at a young age. So it was thought that the renal insufficiency was from the diabetes. Was he on dialysis? He was not. He had stage 3 chronic kidney disease, and so he had presented to us with worsening renal failure, also because he had a drop in hemoglobin, normal hemoglobin being about 12 for a gentleman his age, dropped down to 7.8. The albumin had dropped in his blood to 3.0, and his 24-hour urine had a lot of protein in it baseline, but it was increasing. It was 4 grams per 24 hours. The nephrologist added on a urine protein electrophoresis to that, and it noted that most of this was abnormal monoclonal protein. i maybe take a step back and talk about what multiple myeloma is. Multiple myeloma is a cancer of the plasma cells. Just like patients with leukemia might have an overproduction of white cells, the patients with myeloma have an overproduction of antibody-producing cells. So based on the malignancy of the antibody-producing cells, you can see kind of characteristic hallmarks of the disease. Hallmarks of the disease include anemia with a drop in baseline hemoglobin less than 2 grams per institution normal, renal insufficiency with a creatinine greater than 2.0 if they don't have any evidence of renal dysfunction to begin with, bone lesions that can present as actual lesions or damage to the bone from the plasma cells, or hypercalcemia, elevation serum, calcium, that's greater than 11.5. They always say multiple myeloma is like a puzzle. There are so many different factors to consider. So you want to do a CBC and differential, and you want to look for the presence of anemia. You also want to look at the chemistry panel to see if there's any evidence of hypercalcemia, renal insufficiency. The total protein that's in the chemistry panel is where you get a lot of your referrals from the primary care practices and the other areas. If you have an elevated protein in the blood, you can run a test called serum protein electrophoresis, which will identify the type of abnormal protein. If you have abnormal protein in the urine or an increase in protein in the urine on random urinalysis, then you can do the 24-hour collection and look for urine protein electrophoresis. And so those basic tests are what we'll expand on as specialists. We'll then further do skeletal x-rays from head to toe, looking for the evidence of lesions or areas of bone that have been attacked by the plasma cells. And we're also going to want to do a bone marrow aspirate and biopsy to really quantify the percentage of abnormal plasma cells. Normal bone marrow has about 2% plasma cells, and you can get patients with myeloma, especially if they have evidence of anemia, to be up to clearly 100%. So in the case of the 65-year-old gentleman who presented with anemia, renal insufficiency, and low albumin, that will constitute a diagnosis of myeloma if we do x-rays and prove that he has damage to his bones, or based on the anemia, if we do a bone marrow biopsy and find it's occupied by plasma cells. What about cytogenetics? Can you explain what that is? And was that done in this man? Yeah, that's a great question. Cytogenetics are done on the bone marrow aspirate and biopsy, and they're standard of care for staging. Cytogenetics are like the brains of your cells, and much like other cancers such as leukemia 
MDS, lymphoma, we look to the cytogenetics as more of a marker, not necessarily disease activity, but prognosis nowadays in myeloma. So let's say most cancer centers will perform cytogenetic analysis around the country. You're going to want to look for certain deletions of chromosomes or additions to the chromosomes based on prognosis. So some of the things that are considered kind of bad in myeloma would be deletion of the 13th chromosome on cytogenetics. What about this man? Oh, in this man, he actually had normal cytogenetics in his bone marrow, which is good news for him. Going back to the diagnosis of myeloma, the average age is actually 62 years of age, but we're seeing folks being diagnosed really young and really old. And what's actually very relevant is that we have about 19,000 new cases per year, but there was a recent journal article in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that estimates there's a 57% increase in myeloma by 2030. There's more of a very diverse population, but we're just identifying it more rapidly. But for whatever reason, based on the growth, that's been extrapolated. So I think that that's really important to keep in mind is that maybe it's because we're being more aware of the diagnosis and we have better treatment and patients are living longer. I'm not quite sure of why, but in this gentleman's case, he actually had normal cytogenetics. The bone marrow biopsy had 30% plasma cells in it. So we did blame the anemia partially on the occupation of the bone marrow. Of course, when you see a drop in hemoglobin from baseline, you want to go through your differential diagnosis of what's causing the anemia. We also look to make sure that he didn't have any evidence of GI bleeding or gastrointestinal bleeding, which is a major cause of blood loss in patients. And we also wanted to make sure that it wasn't because his kidney was not producing enough erythropoietin. So what happens in renal failure, for those of you that might not deal with patients with renal failure very commonly, there's a decreased erythropoietin production by the kidney that decreases erythropoiesis in the bone marrow. So in this gentleman, he was receiving erythropoiesis-stimulating agents already, so his EPO levels were okay and his iron and ferritin levels were okay, but he actually had the anemia from the plasma cells in the bone marrow. And how does myeloma cause renal dysfunction? Myeloma causes renal dysfunction through a few different mechanisms. One of the main mechanisms is because the abnormal plasma cells will literally cause proteins that are so dense that they will deposit in the distal tubule of the kidney. And we have this characteristic myeloma kidney or cast nephropathy on biopsy if you do a renal biopsy. Another thing that happens is the plasma cells will secrete immunoglobulins such as IgG, IgA, IgM, cap, and lambda, there's a heavy chain and a light chain component. What happens in some forms of myeloma is that they will actually secrete incomplete immunoglobulins, such as just the kappa or just the lambda, and those are more toxic to the kidneys. So while you can get kidney failure from the myeloma itself and the biology of the disease, also one of the classic presentations is back pain. And in the setting of this abnormal protein that might be putting extra stress on the kidney, then you start taking NSAIDs such as Motrin and ibuprofen. You get a little dehydrated. You can definitely have an acute renal failure. And in this case with this gentleman, his creatinine didn't get any worse. He just had the anemia and the low albumin and more protein. So he was almost asymptomatically diagnosed, as you can say, the chronic kidney disease had been ongoing. So for him, he was 
kind of fortunate that he had a good nephrologist that picked up the extra proteinuria, ran the protein electrophoresis screen, and got him to hematology before he had worsening renal failure. So when you see renal dysfunction from myeloma, if you treat the myeloma successfully, do the kidneys start functioning better? Oftentimes it can, and especially if it's more of the myeloma that's damaging the kidney, you can treat the disease that will offload the damage to the kidney in many cases. There are some different techniques that can be done, though, when patients present in renal failure. Number one would be something, these are just things from the literature, plasmapheresis. So it's essentially just washing the blood. Plasmapheresis is done in a whole bunch of different host of reasons. But in myeloma, plasmapheresis can be used temporarily to help offload the kidneys so that they can kind of get a break and work a little bit more effectively. It's a temporary fix. You're not fixing the myeloma. You still need to treat the patient. And steroids such as dexamethasone in a pulsed form will be very commonly given to patients in acute renal failure while you're looking for the reason that it was caused. Another thing we do is look for hypercalcemia. If hypercalcemia caused renal failure, that, again, you'd want to aggressively hydrate, maybe administer a dose of pomidronate for hypercalcemia malignancy if it's not a severely elevated creatinine because it can be renal toxic too, so you got to be very careful with pomidronate, but that can also help. The other thing is some of the newer agents that we're using for myeloma, such as bortezomib, has been shown to be effective in patients coming off of dialysis. So patients with myeloma who have presented with renal failure and started on bortezomib, they have successfully in some situations come off of dialysis. So again, there's several different mechanisms for the renal failure, but it can be either from the myeloma itself or an acute tubular necrosis type of injury from NSAIDs. What was his life situation? Was he working? What was his family situation? Well, this gentleman had just retired a few years earlier because he wanted to enjoy traveling. He was married. He had three children that were adults and living out of the state. He was high-functioning. He what liked type to of work put, did he do in the past? He was a salesman. Hmm. And he liked to golf, so he and his wife would travel. They lived in the northeastern Ohio area, but they traveled to Hilton Head in Florida, all on the East Coast to go on golfing trips. So he was quite active and had an ECOG performance status of essentially zero. He had no back or bony pain, which is really one of the hallmarks for diagnosis. The reason why I think this gentleman didn't have any back or bone pain, we actually did a skeletal survey, took about 20 films from head to toe to look for identified lesions. And in patients with myeloma, many of them up to 80% at diagnosis will have identified lesions or osteoporosis or thinning areas of bone. He did have some osteoporosis. And the question is, Was it the myeloma that caused it? Because patients with renal disease, chronic kidney disease, can have some bone loss and hyperparathyroidism too, which makes it quite complicated. But he had an excellent quality of life. He was a salesman. He traveled. He was active in his church group, and he had a wonderful life. So, What was his understanding about the implications of the diagnosis, and what kinds of discussions did you have with him about it? Was he or his wife going out on the Internet getting information? How did that all go? I've been doing multiple myeloma nursing and education for the last 12 years now, and I can just see such an evolution in not only the Internet age with patients seeking information, and they have what they call the silver surfers, the rapidly growing group over the age of 65 that are surfing the Internet for information. As a part of diagnosis, I typically 
sit with the patient and the wife and the family, and I explain this is the diagnosis. As a nurse practitioner, I work in tandem with a physician, with several physicians, but I like to take time to answer all the questions. And I also find that you can't tell patients too much until they're ready. A lot of people still think this is the same thing as skin cancer. Melanoma is something they're more familiar with. And even though it's 1% of all new cancers and 100,000 people today have myeloma in the United States, it's still widely unknown. And so you have to give them enough information so that they know what they're dealing with. And you definitely have to book in at least an hour's worth of time in the clinic on that day, but bringing them back within a week for further follow-up evaluation. So how I approached this, which was similar to other folks, is I tell them, I said, this is a malignancy of the plasma cells or a cancer of the plasma cells. The bad news is that this is incurable, but your kidney disease was not curable. It's chronic illness. And we've been successful, quite successful in the United States, as in other parts of the world, that we've turned myeloma into a chronic illness. So we can be hopeful that there are four new agents that have been FDA-approved within the last five years for myeloma, and that more are coming out. And we can successfully manage this diagnosis and maintain his quality of life at the same time. And he says, well, based on what's available right now, what's the chance I'm going to be alive in two years and five years and 10 years? I know patients may not ask that question, but if somebody did in this situation, how would you answer? I go by what the data shows. And now we take into consideration that he was a stage three myeloma. By the international staging system, stage three myeloma, the average survival is about 29 months. So that's two years. My critique about that is that when they did the chart review from the 1990s, the international staging system did not include any of our newer agents such as lenalidomide, bortezomib, or thalidomide. We have, if you look at the NCCN guidelines, a plethora of drugs that we can use. And so I reiterate the data. So up front in myeloma, There is a combination of lenalidomide and dexamethasone. It's pill regimen. You take it at home. You come in for physical exams every month, and you have to take blood tests. And we can talk about the side effects later, but this is one option that patients that benefited the most from this regimen with low-dose dexamethasone and lenalidomide had a really impressive two-year survival so far of about 80%. And so that's 80% of the people living two years is pretty good. You can be in remission three years with this regimen. When that is exhausted, you can move on to another regimen and do a sequential therapy kind of approach. Other options would include more of an aggressive approach with an intent to cure. And then intent to cure would include maybe an upfront regimen, such as lenalidomide or bortezomib. We mentioned bortezomib can reverse renal failure in some cases. Now, his renal failure wasn't from the myeloma. It was from his chronic kidney disease. But we could give him bortezomib, and he can still have an excellent response. So I would say is that most people are living at least five years, if not longer, and I would expect that you would be in that group of patients because he was healthy and active at baseline, and he does not have any cytogenetic abnormalities. And he says to you, I've been reading on the Internet that some patients are treated with bone marrow transplant. What is that, and is that something that will be considered for me? Bone marrow transplant can be with your own bone marrow, which is autologous, or allogeneic transplant, which is somebody else's bone marrow. 
We typically shy away from allogeneic transplants if we can with people with what we call standard risk disease, which we looked and he didn't have any cytogenetic or fish abnormalities. He did have the renal failure. The beta-2 might have been elevated from his chronic kidney disease. So even though he's a stage 3, I would still say he's a soft stage 3 based on his excellent health. So the bone marrow transplant is something I like to call autologous stem cell transplant. And yes, he would be a candidate. Even though he had the kidney disease, he was healthy. Is there sort of an age limit to this? I mean, he's 65. And what I've seen in our surveys, kind of around 70, 75 people, even if they're in good condition, people kind of pull back. Is that the way you approach it? Well, there's a difference between physiologic age and chronologic age. And in myeloma, it depends on which center you go to, whether they really adhere to that. Most of the clinical trials in transplant that had the largest number of accrual were European trials, the French, the Italians, and it was arbitrarily set at the age of 65 or older was when you would be deemed as a non-transplant candidate in Europe or France. And so in most of the studies, you'll read about how patients were included 65 or older. Well, the average age of diagnosis is about 62 to 65, so that would mean that most of our patients are not transplant candidates. Now, that's not the case because if you're young and healthy and you have supplemental insurance, even Medicare will sometimes cover transplant. It really needs to be the discussion between the physician, the nurse, and the patient and giving them their options. So in this case... So there's no upper age limit from mm-mm. your point, 80, 85? There have been some centers that have transplanted have 85 year olds. Have you? Not personally, but I know the University of Arkansas. Open to it. I think so, especially this guy was young and healthy and active. Sure, and for him. I yeah. understand that. Now, yeah. he says, oh, cure. Mm-hmm. What's the chance of cure with his transplant? Unfortunately... There is no, there are data from the University of Arkansas with their total therapy approach that gives patients a regimented number of chemos followed by transplant, followed by maintenance and various stages. And so their data, Dr. Barlogi's group, have shown wonderful 10-year survival rates. And so when you hear 10-year survival rates, that's quite intriguing. I'd like to live 10 years if I had myeloma. But there is a price to be paid, and it is a lot of commitment for that two years. So at the age of 65, we look at, so, okay, well, that might be a possibility, but what about just a single autologous transplant? Autologous transplant is the process of taking one's cells, harvesting them up through this apheresis method, preserving them and putting them in a bag that looks essentially like a red blood cell bag with transfusion, and then giving a single dose of high-dose therapy called melphalan, which is one of the oldest therapies since the 1960s we have, a high dose, and then rescuing them with GCSF or granulocyte stimulating factor and their own stem cells. So the intention is that that high dose of chemotherapy will clear out all the bad in the healthy cells, but then when the marrow repopulates itself with normal cells, Again, you're harvesting stem cells, not plasma cells, and it's not a stem cell disorder myeloma. So that's why we can take the stem cells out of the bone marrow because that's a question I oftentimes get is, why put back disease cells? Like It's not the same as the acute leukemias. But you can successfully put patients into remission for a good three to five years. And there have been upfront studies that say bortezomib with dexamethasone before transplant has improved the remission rates, improved the maintenance rates, and so studies are ongoing. But these are just some suggestions of how you can do a transplant to sustain a longer remission, maybe not have any maintenance. And then hopefully the patients will have improved overall survival. So far, we haven't 
increased overall survival. Transplant's more of a tool in your toolbox, and you don't want to eliminate that as an option. So the standard of care in many centers in the United States would be administer any regimen, A or B, up front, and then after a few cycles, harvest the healthy stem cells for later if the insurance will cover it, which in many HMOs will cover it these days in myeloma, and then follow that by seeing how well they do. Maybe they have good biology of the disease, and maybe they'll be in remission three years with their primary therapy. And so there are just several approaches, cure or control. So what happened with this man? So this man actually ended up, because of his renal failure, was stable, but he did have some degree of renal failure. His creatinine was 2.2 by the time we actually hydrated him and gave him dexamethasone. So you wonder if some of the renal insufficiency, his creatinine clearance actually improved with therapy. We started him in on bortezomib and dexamethasone because we know... Bortezomib is very safe with the kidneys. Even in renal failure, you can administer it, and it doesn't harm the bone marrow stem cells. So let's say he said, I never want to transplant. My cousin had one 20 years ago, and it was terrible. You say, fine, but I'm still not going to give you melphalan because melphalan can impair my ability to harvest your healthy stem cells if you change your mind. So we're always you know, thinking of future possibilities. So he had bortezomib and dexamethasone, which he successfully received, and that's given twice a week for two weeks in a row, and then they get a break. And he got that for about eight cycles and was in a complete remission. The serum-free light chains had come down to normal, the kappa light chains. His 24-hour urine didn't budge very much because a lot of that was just sustained damage from the kidney, but it did come down by 50%. But his anemia improved, his beta-2 microglobulin actually improved, and his albumin came back to normal. So he had a good response to disease. You mentioned dexamethasone, and there's been a lot of discussion about the dose, whether it's high or low dose. Can you go through that, and what kind of dose did he get? Absolutely. So dexamethasone has been Dr. Alexani at the MD Anderson Cancer Center had first used the regimen in the 1980s. It was one of the first regimens since oral melphalan and prednisone in the 1960s that showed effectiveness in myeloma. So that was given at a dose of 40 milligrams by mouth for four days in a row, and then you have a break for four days. It stays 1 through 4, 9 through 12, and 17 through 20 of a 28-day cycle. So that had been shown to improve the disease control, but it's not a long-term fix. Most patients in the newly diagnosed setting will maybe get up to about a 12-month remission with it by itself, and there's a lot of toxicities, the mood swings, the hyperglycemia, and a lot of these patients might be older and have you know some degree of insulin resistance as it is. It affects every system in the organs. So that being said, it's still an effective treatment. So we've been using that dosing schedule for many years, up until about 2004, I believe it was. There was a study, Dr. Raj Kumar from the Mayo Clinic did an Eastern Cooperative Group study based on a patient support group that said, the patient said, I can't stand these side effects of dexamethasone. Is there any way you can find out if it's effective in the lower dose? So he designed a trial that gave this drug lenalidomide, which is a potent oral anti-myeloma therapy that's non-chemotherapy. You'd give it 25-milligram dose, days 1 through 21 of the month, pills. And then he randomized the two groups. The one arm got the standard dose of dex with the high doses, on, off, on, off. And the other group got days 1, 8, 15, and 22 dexamethasone, 40 milligrams. So just every week, every Monday, they would wake up and they would take it. And what we saw in the results of that trial was that 
The patients had less toxicity in terms of infections, significantly so. And another important toxicity, such as deep vein thrombosis, which has been very well documented with lenalidomide and steroids, as well as thalidomide and steroids, the risk of infection, depending on which paper you quote, went from anywhere from 16 to 20% down to about 6 to 9%. So you essentially cut your risk of blood clots in half, and what they further saw was a lot less people died. And rather than quote numbers, it was significantly like three times less patients died. There was like 42 patients died in the high-dose group, and it was in the single number in the other group. So you had less toxicity. It was still very effective with excellent overall survival and response rates. So that's the low-dose dexamethasone. This gentleman with bortezomib, there's a whole bunch of different ways that if you give Velcade or bortezomib and dexamethasone, as an induction therapy, what he did and what was extrapolated from that study with the low-dose dex, but it's also part of another relapse study, 20 milligrams of dexamethasone the day of and after Velcade. Still as a pretty high dose, but it was a lesser of a dose. But it did prove to be very effective for him. After the eight cycles, he was given the opportunity of stopping therapy or go on to maintenance with weekly Velcade, and he decided to stop altogether. There are data that suggest that patients that have responded to bortezomib that go on a holiday, I like to use the word holiday, that go on a bortezomib holiday, they can be retreated successfully if they've had a good response. So that's what he did is he went off of everything, no maintenance. When patients like this patient get started on bortezomib, What do you review with them in terms of potential side effects and problems, and what did you see with him? So there are some pretty significant dose-limiting side effects with bortezomib and some important ones I'd like to share. Number one would be the risk of diarrhea. GI side effects are as high as 57%, and that is typically within 24 to 48 hours after the bortezomib or Velcade is given. So I like to warn patients that this is a big side effect. So make sure that you drink lots of fluid and make sure that if you're having this diarrhea, that it's okay that you can take Imodium. And Imodium is typically, I say, take two pills after each bowel movement if it's a very loose bowel movement because you don't want them to take it ahead of time and then they get constipated because ileus is also a lot more rare, but it's a potential side effect of bortezomib, but it's really the diarrhea. Did he have diarrhea? He had just mild diarrhea and didn't need to take any Imodium. GI side effects in terms of nausea are also seen. In order to combat that, I find that people do quite well if you premedicate them with a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, whatever the institution uses. We use granesitron, one milligram, and then that'll hold them for 24 hours. The good thing about myeloma and steroids is that steroids are a pretty good antiemetic. So if you give the dexamethasone day of and after the Velcade or bortezomib, then you can actually have an antiemetic effect too. Some patients will get just bortezomib alone, and I noticed that they have more nausea. So one of the last most important side effects that I like to review would be peripheral neuropathy or neuropathy associated with bortezomib. Neuropathy in patients that are receiving bortezomib is very scary because it can be not an insidious onset, like if you use thalidomide, it can just grab you. And it's really important to remember that in the clinical trials, when bortezomib or Velcade was given, 
We had nurses every three weeks assessing the patient's neuropathy. What's happening now that it's in the general population, you're just giving it. It's an IV push over three to five seconds, and then the patient's out the door, and you're forgetting to ask them about how your fingers or toes are. Are you having signs of neuropathy? Cramping in the legs are something that you can oftentimes see that can be very debilitating sometimes. How do they describe it, or what's the quality of it? We have a lot of drugs in oncology that can cause neuropathy, but it seems like each one has a different Mm -hmm. presentation. And that's a great question, because we think as nurses about chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, but I would tell you that bortezomib has a totally different presentation. So patients will start as describing it similar to other neuropathies in the glove and stocking pattern in the hands and feet that tends to progress upward. Stepping back to thalidomide neuropathy, it's very gradual. It's rarely debilitating, but it can be just numb. But the bortezomib neuropathy is painful in many cases. We think it might be because you can have this. This is a proteasome, so it's one of the garbage cans of the cells. And so we think that when it deposits and finds its way on the nerve ending, there's no lymphatic system or anything to pump it out. So it's really stuck and can attack the myelin sheath. You mentioned the proteasome, and of Mm -hmm. course, bortezomib is, quote, a proteasome inhibitor. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of go back how you explain that to patients and how that connects with the neuropathy? Well, sure. When I explain bortezomib to patients, I say all cells, healthy cells and cancerous cells, have these things in them called proteasomes, and their job is to clear out bad proteins and clear out cells. It's like the garbage cans of our cells. So when you give bortezomib, you give it on, let's say, day one is a Monday, it will inhibit proteasome function in all cells, healthy and cancer cells. Within about 72 hours, healthy cells can recover, regenerate, and go back to their normal way of business. But cancer cells can't deal with the different signals, and they spontaneously decombust, is what I like to say. They explode, they die, and they undergo apoptosis. And so the way we give bortezomib or velcate is typically with a 72-hour window to allow the healthy proteasome to recover. As a result, day 11, you get the cyclic but predictable low platelets or thrombocytopenia, so you can expect the platelets to be lowest on day 11, but then by the time they start cycle to day one or the subsequent cycle, the platelets are normal. So you don't necessarily have to transfuse them unless they have bad myeloma and have been heavily pretreated you might need to give them some platelet transfusions. But typically, they don't go below 30,000. If you do, you might hold that dose and wait till they recover, and then you can resume. But So the proteasome is real fancy. It's what I call a non-chemo-chemo because it does kill cells. So in a way, it's classified as a chemotherapy, but it doesn't kill all cells. They don't have any hair loss or thinning or mucositis or any of the classic side effects of many of the chemos. But there's something about the neurons that they can't mm-hmm. recover? Is that the oh, idea? yeah. There are some studies undergoing to try to really identify the mechanism of peripheral neuropathy. And unfortunately, we don't have it down. But we know that the nerve endings are very long in our body, and it makes sense that they'll attack the peripheral nerves. But there is a theory by some that the proteasome might get trapped in the nerve endings, and because we don't have the lymphatic system to clear things out or go through the whole body, they just kind of sit there and then can cause subsequent nerve damage. Now, Belcade or bortezomib neuropathy in many studies has been reversible, but the key is to prompt identification And if they're experiencing signs of neuropathy, you have to hold the dose, wait till it recovers, 
and then you would reduce the dose, actually. There is a study by Dr. Richardson at the Dana-Farber, and he's done most of the bortezomib studies. Uh, he's actually one of the investigators have done a lot of them, and looked at these trials and compared the side effects of a bunch of different trials and noted that the patients that actually had a reduction in the neuropathy were able to adhere to their therapy longer because they didn't get the debilitating peripheral neuropathy. Some patients are afraid to tell you that it's getting worse because they don't want you to take their medication away, and there are a lot of barriers. But you have to say this may or may not get better because now, even though in the clinical studies it got better, in real world, it's not always resolving. And that's what I see in my practice is you just have to have that open line of communication because for three to six months you can have painful, almost debilitating neuropathy. And there is an autonomic component where, for example, the clinical trials suggested 12% of the patients had hypotension. Well, that could be some autonomic dysfunction. So autonomic neuropathy? Yes, your autonomic nervous system. And you would see things such as gait changes, dizziness, falling down to the ground in severe forms. And you can see this with cumulative doses of bortezomib. So the nurse, it would be very important and helpful if before each dose of bortezomib, you say, are you having any different sensation opening jars, buttoning your shirt, walking down the street? And there's actually a wonderful tool that they've used in the clinical trials. It's about 11 questions, and it's a questionnaire you can hand to your patients, and then they can say if they have any side effects. But Going back, okay, go so ahead. you see motor changes also? Absolutely. They- you can see the motor changes, especially longer. And it's rare to see them within the first couple cycles, but four, five, six, seven cycles. And we can't predict right now who does extremely well. And then there are other patients that don't do as well on bortezomib. So I know that there are some studies going with looking at cytokine release and trying to identify why some people do better than others. I guess one other thing we should mention about bortezomib, we were talking before about cytogenetics and adverse prognosis, and I guess it's been seen that you do see maybe, I guess, a little bit more of a benefit with bortezomib in those patients. Bortezomib has been shown to overcome the poor prognosis of chromosome 13 deletion in patients that have experienced that. There have been some studies, I think Dr. Bayless and University of Alberta did a lenalidomide study. There was an extended access program and published some of his experience that patients that had a chromosome 13 deletion still were able to overcome and respond. And in my personal experience, we will still give lenalidomide to patients with chromosome 13 deletion. And I have one lady that's been in remission for four years now. So while there is still a lot that we know, there's a lot that we still don't know. Cytogenetics are one piece of the puzzle. We have to still look at all the other factors. So now this man had a great response to this therapy. Did he have his cells harvested? Yes, he did have his stem cells harvested because he was 65, he was retired, but his wife's insurance, his wife was still working and had some supplemental insurance, and she was 62 at the time and thinking about retiring. And so before her insurance ran out and they approved the harvest, we did harvest those stem cells. And our institution actually does cover the cost of the storage, but then the actual insurance has to pay for the harvest. But he had his cells stored, and he was in remission for quite some time. Let's talk about some of the other agents that are used in myeloma and particularly how you manage the side effects and toxicity. You mentioned liposomal doxorubicin. Mm -hmm. What do you say to patients beginning on that agent? So pegylated liposomal doxorubicin was something that in the late 90s was used up front. Just to backtrack, in about the mid-80s, the VAD regimen became standard care. 
It was infusional vincristine, adriamycin, and dexamethasone for those of you that aren't familiar with the regimen because it's pretty obsolete at this point except for some studies in Europe. But that required patients to have a portacath and a hospital stay for four days in a row. And so that, when we had doxolar pegylated liposomal doxorubicin became available for sarcoma and breast, we started mixing the doxyl with dexamethasone and vincristine. So our center at the Cleveland Clinic in the late 90s was one of the first centers to do a clinical trial with my mentor, Dr. Mohammed Hussein, that used that and showed just as good response rates, and it was an outpatient regimen. What we observed in our myeloma patients was hand-foot syndrome or palmar plantar erythrodysthesia, And that is managed by educating your patients to avoid washing your hands, don't take long hot showers, be wary of manual activities. That, along with myelosuppression that can occur, which can be addressed by giving Nulast on day two of therapy, is how we did it in our center. It was pretty well-tolerated regimen. It's given IV over an hour and a half after subsequent cycles for about four to six cycles. Worry about cardiotoxicity with that. So although the pegylated anthracyclines are less likely to cause cardiotoxicity, you can see it and you want to make sure baseline cardiac function is adequate. And because myeloma patients might have had breast or sarcoma or some other malignancy, make sure they haven't had adria prior to that. And you follow their cardiac function also? Absolutely. I do a baseline echocardiogram. Some centers will do a MUGA scan. But as a disclaimer, since the efficacy of doxel was more pre-transplant, you'd give to doxel or in renal failure, it's not that great. And it's a chemotherapy, but like stay away from chemotherapy actually in myeloma. We actually use it more in the relapse setting nowadays in combination with bortezomib. The Velcade doxel or bortezomib doxel combination was shown by Dr. Orlowski's group to improve progression-free survival. Patients that had the combination, which is a steroid-free combination, were in remission about, I think, 9.3 months versus those that just got the Velcade alone was about six months. So that was significant enough to say we can give it as a combination. So this is something that even though this gentleman, our 65-year-old case study, had gotten bortezomib, let's say we go to Velcade, and then something happens with his performance status in the future, or he doesn't want a transplant, or he's in remission until he's 73, we can go back, and if his heart function's okay, we can give him doxel and Velcade. You can reuse the therapy that you've used before if you've had some response, and you can gain synergy, actually. Using the measures you talked about, and I guess maybe specific other measures, do patients in general, can you get them to a point where they're usually not having any side effects or quality of life issues with the liposomal doxorubicin, or is sort of hand-foot kind of part of getting it? Not everybody gets hand-foot syndrome. Based on the phase three study, the bortezomib and liposomal doxorubicin versus bortezomib alone. It was a very low incidence of hand-foot syndrome. And what have you observed in general, particularly on that combination of bortezomib and liposomal doxorubicin in terms of quality of life? Mm -hmm. It's actually a pretty good quality of life. You have to take into consideration in the relapse setting. They've been through a few therapies. They might not be at an excellent performance status, but it's very well tolerated. Again, the doxel is... IV day four, the dose of it is reduced. And depending on your center, it's usually 30 milligrams per meter squared. So it's not a high dose. If you think to your breast cancer patients might be getting 80 milligrams per meter squared or sarcoma is getting significantly higher dose. Mucositis can be a side effect. So you want to instruct about good oral hygiene and mouth care. 
but as a rule, patients tend to do quite well. They don't get a lot of, some of them will get some significant constipation, but that's rare. Not too much nausea, especially if you pre-medicate and you're giving dexamethasone, which sometimes in the relapse setting, we do add dexamethasone to that regimen. And just to backtrack, I didn't mention how dexamethasone or prednisone works in myeloma. It's actually kind of neat. We think it's because it blocks the IL-6 production in the blood. IL-6 is a growth factor for myeloma cells. So steroids alone are a treatment for myeloma as it impairs the IL-6 production and the cells go under spontaneous apoptosis. The major agents really are bortezomib, and lenalidomide and dexamethasone. You would be amazed. All the And there's such a heightened awareness for myeloma. There are amazing clinical trials that are coming out. One of the hot things right now is bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. In RBD. The newly, yes. And, or VRD. Either way, it's 100%, good stuff. 100% response rate. amazing. Dr. Richardson was the one who presented yeah. that. But will that equal overall survival? And that's where the nuances of myeloma, and that's a bureaucratic debate, if your intention is to here and you want to get people in a long remission, hopefully it'll improve overall survival. But I guess the other thing, I think this is pretty new, the RVD or mm-hmm. VRD, but from what I've heard, it sounds like it's not so terrible in terms of side effects and toxicity. Is that what you've seen? Actually, yes. And it's really important, though, to take into consideration that when patients are on clinical trials, it's a very controlled environment. Right. So my suggestion to the nurse in the clinical community practice would be you got to watch for side effects. 